So somebody said, David, where did you get this idea for this series to talk about stuff that Jesus never talked about? Well, I got it from my mother. My mother was really good at taking the things that she said and making them Jesus' words. So, you know, if you had a mother, you probably understand what I mean. So there was one phrase that my mom used very often. Being a teenage boy, I was not the cleanest, tidiest, neatest person in the house. It, where it fell off is where it stayed, and it usually was smelly and stinky and dirty and all these kinds of things. And she would, you know, find the peanut butter and jelly under the bed that had been there for two or three weeks, maybe longer, covered in mold, hard as a brick. You could build a house with it. And my mom would say to me in these moments, she would say, David... Do you know what the Bible says? Cleanliness is next to godliness. And I would love to say that it worked. It would, to some limited degree, it was, had some level of persuasion over me until I became biblically literate. And when I became biblically literate and researched Scripture to some minor degree and discovered that Jesus never said cleanliness is next to godliness, and that there were a lot of things that my mother said that God never said that were just things that she said that she thought God should have said. So I asked her the next time she said it, I said, Mom, nowhere in the Bible does it say cleanliness is next to godliness. And, and I said, show me the chapter and verse. And she said, I don't care if he said it or not, clean up your room, and Jesus should have said it anyway. And so that's why I was thinking about all the things that we think Jesus said, but he never said. Maybe on a more serious note. For instance, here's a list of nine things that Jesus never said. If you were a better Christian and had more faith, this would not be happening to you. He never said, uh, you have no idea the damage that you are causing to my reputation. He never said, make sure that when you meet someone who belongs to another church or another religion, that you spend the majority of your time beating them down, criticizing them, and attacking them for the things that they believe. He never said that. He never said to me, those of you who are tired and restless and weighed down by the troubles of life, if you will come to me, I will weigh you down with a list of meaningless rituals and rites that will burden you even more. No, Jesus said, if you're tired and weary and you come to me, I will give you rest. By the way, Sarah, Bailey, we're happy you're here. And Jesus never said women can't preach because you can preach. All right? He didn't say that. You may find it someplace else in the Bible, but you'll find it on the lips of Jesus. Jesus surrounded himself with women leaders and teachers. Also, he didn't say, you don't have to forgive someone who has really hurt you. He didn't say to Peter, well, when they've hurt you seven times, on the eighth time you get to get the gun or hurt them or the knife and stab them in the back, you get to hurt them. didn't say that. He said 70 times seven, it's infinite. And that is the teaching of Jesus. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He didn't say to, to, to us, come and follow me when you get your act together. When you figure it out, when you believe all the right things, when you have all your questions answered, when you've cleaned your act up, then you can come and follow. He just said, come and follow me, and we'll work it out together. And he didn't say, 
hate the sin and love the sinner. What did he say? He said, love the sinner and worry about your own sin. Before you worry about taking the speck out of your brother's eye, worry about the plank that's in your own eye. Now today I'm going to preach about another thing that Jesus didn't say. When you look in John's Gospel, chapter 12 through chapter 17, it's a very pivotal moment in the life of Jesus. In chapter 12 of the Gospel of John, Jesus has been rejected by the religious authorities and establishment. And he says this, it's very, very important. He says there in chapter 12, at the end of chapter 12, that when people see me, they see my Father. When they hear me, they hear my Father. My Father and I are one. And he goes on and says, if you know me, you know my Father. You know the one that has sent me. He says, when I talk, he says this, when I talk and when I speak, the words that I speak are the words of my Father because my Father and I, we're, we're on the same page. We, we, I'm speaking His words. And He says, I am a light in the darkness. And I shine light in the darkness and I give light to people so that they can find themselves out of the darkness and the gloom, the sadness, the fear, the anxiety, out of their old life into a new life. And if you look at what he says throughout the Gospels, he says the things that I teach in my words are the, is that light. Listen to my words and I will direct you. I will guide you. Build your life on my words and you will have a life that will withstand anything. Well, it's here then in chapter 13 of, his gospel, of John, John, John's Gospel, he tells us how we are to be identified. It's a very critical moment for Jesus and his disciples. He's in the upper room, and he's in telling them, giving him his final words, this is what's most important to me. And they will know you are my disciples by these things. Now, sometimes we get confused about what's important, what's not important. Let me ask you the question, how would you fill in the blank? They, we are no, they will know we are his disciples by, how would you answer that question? Well, he didn't say, they'll know you're my disciples by the stuff that you post on Facebook. He didn't say, they'll know you're my disciples by the number of times you attend church in a year. He didn't say, they'll know you are my disciples by the denomination that you belong to, by the music that you listen to, or by the bumper stickers that you put on your car, or by the things that you boycott. If people looked at the bumper stickers on our car and determined how we were to be identified, people would be very confused because it depends on what Christian you're talking about because we put different bumper stickers on our car. He didn't say, they will know you are my disciples by your flawless theology, by your knowledge of the Bible, by your political affiliations, by your position on gun control, climate control, abortion, or you name the current social day issue. He didn't say, they will know you are my disciples by the people who judge, you judge, who don't live the way that you do, by the length of your prayers, the big words you use, by the way that you dress on Sunday morning, by the size of the Bible you carry, or by the things that you're against, or by the people that you turn away to make a big point. He didn't say any of those things. Let me comment on that last one. If you were to ask the average person in America today or anywhere in the world today, were to ask them what are Christians about, 
what do Christians stand for? And those who are not a part of the Christian community seem to get the idea from Christians that Christians are people who are against things. We are against things. Sure, there are things that we're against. But if you look at who Jesus was, that Jesus, I think, in my personal opinion, this is how I read and understand him, that those who follow Jesus are best described by his followers by the things that we are for, not the things that we're against, by the people that we welcome and not the people that we turn away. I personally believe that by demonstrating respect and kindness for people who disagree with us, people who have different values, people who may or may not believe in God, people who attend church or don't attend church, people who may offend us by the very way that they live and their just strangeness, that by demonstrating respect for people, that it does not compromise who we are or what we believe. It's always good to be kind. It's always good to be merciful. It's always good to be loving. And when you see Jesus, he never turned people away. That does not mean that he endorsed everyone or their actions. But he welcomed them to him. Let me get a couple examples. So Sarah Huckabee Sanders goes to a restaurant, and because the people are there don't agree with her and her political positions, they refuse to serve her a meal. She shows great respect to the people that turned her away by agreeing to pay for the bill. Wonderful. This is just what's going on in our world today. We can't judge people for their behavior who do not call themselves Christians necessarily. I'm talking about out there. We can ourselves. But just flip back a few months and someone refuses to bake a cake for someone who's a same-sex couple. I don't think anybody wins by not baking cakes or turning people away. It just creates more enemies. We make enemies friends by showing respect and love. I think Jesus would have baked the cake and he would have served the meal. He wouldn't turn anyone away because he welcomed all people to his table. We forget that in that upper room that night with Jesus was the man who would betray him for money and the man who would deny him. And if Jesus' table was big enough for all people, I think that our table ought to be big enough too. Because in that moment, we hear Jesus tell his disciples, what did he say to them? He said, this is how you will be known as my followers. It's not that theology is important. It's not that our values aren't important. It's not that doing things for others is important. He says this, Mark, John 13, 34 through 35, a new command I give you, love one another. And this is the whoa statement, is I loved you. The shame, love, and respect and cur- that I've given to you, I expect to you to love another. And by this, 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 everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let me point out to you again the context in the situation. He's in the upper room with his disciples. He, we then discover that Judas is going to betray him and that Peter's going to deny him. And he has left the church in their hands. He is now telling them, when the world looks at you, your capacity to love one another is going to reveal the truth about who you are. What he's saying is that our growing capacity to love and to show concern for one another in spite of hurt, sorrow, brokenness, differences, and those kinds of things is a reflection that I live in you because inside of me is love. Love is at the center of our faith. And not any kind of love, but a sacrificial love that's willing to die for another, 
even for the one that is our enemy. At the heart of the teaching of Jesus is love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, in this setting, what we see is we see Jesus take off his robe, stoop down, thank you, Sarah, stoop down and take those dirty feet in their hands and wash them as a lowly servant. And what would those feet be doing? As soon as they left that room, those feet would run, run to the authorities and turn him in. Those feet would run as far away from the cross as they could and leave leave him behind alone. He knew where those feet were going to go. He knew that his his ticket out of this world was not a first-class ticket, that he would die a suffering, humiliating, publicly horrific death, and that the people who were his closest followers were those who would leave him. And yet he took his feet, their feet in his hands and he washed them as he's washed you and he's washed me and forgiven us in the same way. We've all denied him. We've all betrayed him. We've all turned away from him. No one is righteous, every one of us. We all fall short of the glory of God. And he looks at the disciples and what does he say? He says, do you understand what I've done for you? Sometimes I don't think the church understands what he's done for us. Sometimes we put ourselves in a position of privilege over others. Sometimes we get mistaken. When you look at Jesus, there are four types of people that we see Jesus love from the easiest to the hardest. Number one type of person that he loved were the least of these. They were those who were on the out, who were in need, who were hungry, naked, and in prison. Those are the easier ones to love. The second group of people that he found difficult to love, more difficult to love, were the aliens. And by the aliens, that means people who are different from us, who share different values and beliefs, who are strange to us, maybe a different ethnicity, a different belief system altogether. The third group of people that Jesus loved that we find difficult to love, even more difficult to love, were his adversaries, those who were his enemies. But the fourth group of people that is the most difficult for us to love and that he found difficult to love were his closest followers. It is easier to forgive someone who is a stranger than it is to forgive the family member or the person that's closest to you that you disagree with and that hurts you and wounds you. And in that room, Jesus is saying to them, it's not going to be easy to be the church in the world because the church is going to be made up of imperfect people, hypocritical people, mistaken people, flawed people. I'm not gathering together a group of A-list celebrities to be my church. I'm gathering together all the messed up people in the world to show how great my love is and show what I can do, how I'm going to take takers and turn them into givers, take purposeless people and turn them into purposeful people, take wrong-headed, arrogant people and turn them into humble people. I'm going to take angry, anxious people and turn them into peacemakers and hateful people and turn them into lovers, and I'm going to call them my church. What a flawed theory he had. But that's the church. He said, and he prayed for them in chapter 7, I pray, I pray because the world is going to want to tear you apart, is going to want to pull you into division and strife. But the hope that this church, the hope that the world has is found in my people, in my church, in my, my people, loving one another. I don't know where we get the idea that the church was meant to be a group of of perfect A-list people when you look at the people that he surrounded himself with. You see, the church wasn't designed by Jesus to be a gathering of perfect people. 
It was meant to be a gathering of imperfect people where much grace is required. Because in our imperfection is grace is manifested and we discover what grace is. Because when you go to church with people, you have to learn to love people that you don't like. Uh, that was a joke. But if you're going to a church looking for people that you always agree with, the only way you'll ever go to a church where you always agree with them around you is that nobody ever talks. I have friends of mine tell me, David, I'm leaving my church. I've been here three or four years, and these people don't get it. They continue to criticize me and criticize one another. They don't know how to be nice to each other. And I look at them and I say, gee whiz. Jesus was with his disciples for three years, and they tried to kill him too. I say, what makes you a better pastor than Jesus? If Jesus called together a group of messy people, what makes you think he's going to hand you a group of perfect people? He's given, that's who he's given you to be the pastor of. Pastor that church and watch what he can do when you point, people to, point your people to him and watch him work it out. Because God, here's one of the truth is, you can't grow if you go to a church where everybody agrees the same way as you, everybody thinks the same way, everybody believes the same things, if nobody speaks their mind and you're never offended. Because how do we grow? We grow in situations where we rub up against strife, difficulty, and hardship. The church is meant to be a messy church, a imperfect church. Do you know what messy love is? What I mean by that is it's not honeymoon love. You know what honeymoon love is? Honeymoon love is when you go on your honeymoon and they have someone there to fix your breakfast, fix your lunch, and fix your supper. You don't have to cook anything. They have chairs already set out for you at the beach. You don't have to change any diapers because there are no kids. Happy, happy day. And you can drop your towel wherever you want because somebody's going to come and clean up behind you. That's honeymoon love. If you can't be in love on the honeymoon, there's no hope for you. But messy love, messy love is when you're the dad and you've got to carry all the stuff out to the beach. You get out to the beach. By the time you get out to the beach, see, dad at the beach is pack mule. Dad gets out to the beach, and by the time you get out to the beach, what it means is that everybody's tired and ready to go home, and you just sat down. Right? I'm preaching now. You see, messy love is the kind of love where you've got to make your own breakfast, mow your own grass, clean your rooms, and you have to pick your towels off the floor because cleanliness is next to godliness, according to your mom. Because at some point, the woman that you're worried becomes your mom. It's messy. That's terrible and inappropriate. I'm sorry if I'm offending anybody in the room. I'm totally out of control. You see, the reality is you should go to a church where you don't agree with everything that's said. If you go to a church and you're not offended by the preacher at least 2.6 times a year, you're not in the right church. Listen, I offend myself half the time. Somebody said to me last week, I don't agree with you. And I said, that's okay. I don't agree with me most of the time either. That's the way God designed it. God designed it. So that we'd be in a place where we have to expand the capacity of our love. And that love that he's talking about here is a visible love. We can see it. It's a love that's bigger than differences. It's a messy love. It's a sacrificial love that looks like Jesus laying his life down on the cross for us. And when the world sees it, it's attractive. You see, the early church, the first three centuries, were not drawn into the church because of their theology. The way they got to know Jesus was because of the way they loved one another. There was no other community on this earth 
that was filled with so many different types of people who loved and cared for one another the way they did and the way they took care of their poor and the way they loved and cared for each other and became real community in the midst of all that diversity is what attracted people to their church because they saw it nowhere else in the world. That's our call to be the church. And it's so attractive to begin to love each other in the way that he loved us. And that command he gives us should always keep us on our toes because we, are, we will always never be there. And in a world that's filled with so much division and hatred, it is so easy for us as a church to be pulled into it. But we have to remember the one who has called us that we are here. We are here not to point people to our point of view, but to point people to Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who has a vision of the kingdom of God, who came to bring good news to the poor and to set it, to give liberty to the oppressed and to set the prisoners free and to open blind eyes. He is the voice of compassion and love and mercy in this world, and he has called us to be that church in the world. And you can't be a Christian on your own in this world. We belong to his church. And so today I invite you to ask yourself this question, why do I find it so hard to love? And what does it look like when I begin to love the way that he loved me? And finally, is to give you this invitation to join this messy church of imperfect people.